Hello and welcome to the DMA Politics Podcast. I'm Michael Sturrock, the Public Affairs Manager at the DMA. And today, uh, it's been a little, little while since we've uh, had the podcast, and apologies about that, but there's been lots of things going on. Um, coronavirus, obviously, has been taking up most of the DMA's time, and if you've been uh, looking at our website, you'll have seen all sorts of things that the DMA doing, not least lobbying the government for change in policy of uh, and getting lots more help out to businesses that was originally available um, and also just generally supporting our industry through training uh, as well. So have a look on the website if you haven't yet to see what kind of things we've been doing and hopefully there'll be some things there to occupy your time if you are at a loose end at the moment. So on to the, today's podcast, I'm delighted to be joined by Olivia Gamblin, who is the founder and CEO of Ethical Intelligence, which is a global consultancy which aims to encourage businesses to make ethical decisions about their business practices, particularly to do with data and AI. Welcome, Olivia. Thank you, Michael, for having me today. I'm excited to be here. Excellent. Thank you for joining me. And you're joining me from Brussels, right? Yes, today it's Brussels, yes. Excellent. Yeah, you're kind of one of these people who's all over, at least Europe for the moment, but you're across to the US as, as well. Um, and that's kind of where I want to start, actually, because you founded ethical intelligence during your postgrad at Edinburgh, but before that, you were born and brought up in the Silicon Valley, which is, of course, you know, the home of global tech and um, the peak of human development, some might say. Um, what, what did it feel like? Did, was that a kind of real sense that you got when you were living there? It's by all means, a bubble, um, very, very much a bubble. And honestly, we, we are, the people that live in that area are pretty much guinea pigs. Um, you're surrounded by all of these different tech startups that need to tech test their, their technology. And what better than highly technical literate people um, that are right at your front door. So most of the time, uh, I knew the technology coming out far before anyone else uh, really in the world, because it was all kept in this, in this bubble. So it's a kind of a funky place to, to grow up, but uh, definitely an interesting one in terms of tech. Sure, sure. And in terms of being, do you think that's given you kind of an inherent advantage compared to your peers just having kind of been born and, as you say, um, kind of immersed in the future of technology? Yeah, absolutely. I think, um, <laughs> so there's a joke that every single startup out of the valley is going to change the world. Um, <laughs> And as you grow up and, and you hear, okay, you're changing the world and you're changing the world, you kind of get into your head of like, okay, well, I should probably change the world too. Uh, <laughs> so in one way, it's, a, it's an advantage of this idea of, okay, well, you know what? Um, I grew up in this very innovative, uh, solution-driven, again, bubble, but mm -hmm. it was really encouraging of, okay, you have a problem, find a solution and find an innovative solution and figure out how you can also impact other people with that solution or give other people that solution on top of it. Um, so I think in, in that one respect, it really led to, it probably fostered the entrepreneur inside of me. Um, and then on the flip side, considering I work in AI ethics, technology ethics, um, growing up in that area, I saw the best and the worst of technology. Mm. So I like to believe that by witnessing the worst of technology, that is a bit where that passion and drive comes um, just personally of wanting to be able to fix or uh, in typical Valley speak to change the world um, in terms of the, the, the harder aspects of technology. Sure. Is there anything that you were a, a guinea pig for, as you say, that has gone on to change the world as you, you know it? Uh, 
I wish I could say yes. Um, <laughs> there was so much weird technology. We had the robots delivering, um, delivering uh, food deliveries about 10 years ago, something like that. And those were always the joke because you had to have a person following them everywhere they went. And so the joke was like, that would just be the weirdest summer job of like, you're, you're not even delivering, you're, you're following something. That's <laughs> okay, you're a few steps below on the ladder. Well, that's kind of tragic, yeah. <laughs> the second place to the robot. Um, so you went on to um, study philosophy in Texas, right? And then uh, you worked in some startups and um, worked. Uh, what did you study in Texas? Was that philosophy and... <laughs> so in Texas, I studied philosophy, entrepreneurship, and Italian. And the poor administration oh. had no idea what to do with me. Yeah, I'm not surprised. They're kind of quite... Um, uh, well, I suppose there is some crossover, of course. You know, some great Italian philosophers and philosophy and entrepreneurship. I can kind of get that as well. There must have, there can't be that many people doing that sort of mix. Absolutely not. I think I was the only one they've ever seen, in fact. <laughs> That's great. But then you moved across to Brussels um, and... The, the world of Brussels, where, where you are now, of course, um, you know, the hefty world of Brussels bureaucracy isn't exactly people's idea of, of fun, especially, you know, first trips to Europe, you might think Paris or Rome or yeah, Vienna or whatever. What was it that attracted you to Brussels? Um, well, actually, to be fair, I did live in Rome before <laughs> moving uh, to Brussels. That's fine then. <laughs> so, the typical, no, no, I'm, I'm half Italian. And so the drive was, okay, I, I want to, moved to Rome. I want to live in Italy um, for a time, for the time being. Um, and that was a wonderful experience. I was actually on a digital art residency in Rome. So, you know, I lived a whole nother life. <laughs> but as that residency was coming to a close, I actually had the opportunity to move to Brussels to be a researcher um, in terms of that was when GDPR was all the hype. And uh, mm. back when Brexit was still cool and <laughs> a lot of those data data privacy policies were first coming out. Um, I came, I moved to Brussels to actually be a researcher in that. Um, and part of that whole attraction was the fact that the EU Commission, the Parliament, is based here. And I had a fascination with that. Not so much in terms of politics. It was more of I'm really curious about what that environment's like, um, how that is, having all of those different cultures come together and essentially be able, well, in theory, be able to agree on something. Yeah. Mm, sure. And what does that tell you? Where did you see that kind of agreement or does it just seem quite a big mess as it sometimes looks? Uh, I think it's, uh, they do a good job of hiding a lot of the mess. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but that's, I mean, that's, that's a given anything with that many cultures trying to agree on something. I mean, try and get Italians and Germans to agree on something is hard enough. Uh, yeah. <laughs> adding in the French and the Spanish and, and uh, well, used to have the British in there. Um, it's a bit, it's, uh, it's a cacophony, but uh, they make it work, which I think, I mean, at the end of the day, I think is something actually very impressive. Mm -hmm. Totally. So taking that experience then, you were, came across to, to Bonnie, Scotland, where I am now, uh, to Edinburgh University for your postgrad studies. What, what did that focus on and how did your um, you know, previous work, um, your life up until that point, how did that inform what you were going to do? Yeah, so essentially, um, of course, I had this background in philosophy, which was my 
intellectual guilty pleasure. I loved studying ethics. I loved studying morality. And I was fascinated by that. But of course, I finished my undergrad and went, I have no idea how to make a career out of that. Um, I'm going to go into something a little more practical-minded. Um, and essentially what happened while I was in Brussels the first time as researcher, because I was in all of these data privacy conferences and meetings and constantly in that, that ecosystem, I started hearing over and over again um, people calling for the need for ethics. Like, oh, we need ethics in our data. Because of this philosophy background, I was like, yes, oh, finally a conversation I really want to have. <laughs> like, okay, here I am. And over and over again, whenever I asked that question, the answer was always, oh, you know, it's, a, it's something management handles. And uh, I never found the management that handled it. So I thought, okay, well, I guess I'll go handle it. <laughs> but essentially, it was kind of that moment of, oh, my goodness, here's this my technical literacy, my love of technology that I grew up surrounded with and my fascination with ethics coming together in this kind of just perfect little package for me. Um, so essentially what I did then was I went, okay, you know, I have this background in ethics, but I want to concentrate in uh, ethics of technology, ethics of AI specifically, um, which led me to actually coming to Edinburgh to study um, specifically for Dr. Mark Spurvak's class, Ethics of Artificial Intelligence, um, which by far is one of the best courses I've ever taken um, and oh, was wow. definitely worth going to Edinburgh, especially, well, everything else included as well. <laughs> Keep taking <laughs> say that. it. Was... <laughs> <laughs> That's great. So, but you, you founded Ethical Intelligence during your studies, which is pretty impressive in itself. Um, how, how did it kind of did you have quite a clear idea of what it was going to be, or was this kind of a make it up as you go along kind of thing? Ooh, uh, definitely make it up as we're going along. It's it's okay. It's a it's a bit of both. Um, actually, what happened was I uh, co-founded a society called the Beneficial AI Society within mm -hmm. about the first first month of being in Edinburgh. Essentially, um, met another girl studying AI. We sat down one day for a coffee and she was interested in ethics and I was interested in artificial intelligence. We had this amazing conversation. We walked away going, oh, there's, I think other people that want to do this. Um, I created a society off of that. Essentially, we would meet once a week in a pub um, and debate the ethical implications of all of these applications that were happening in society. Um, they ranged from very serious conversations to ridiculous conversations, but it was a great time. And what ended up happening with that was we at one point started to get kind of this um, outside interest, uh, commercial interest into what we were doing. Like, well, okay, we're, we're a bunch of drunk students in a pub. That's not a business. Um, that's not going to work. But clearly there's something here. Um, so then ethical intelligence ended up being born kind of out of that. So of course, the society was, was just started for conversation. And then mm. through the society, it was, okay, we, we have a, I've got a bit of a direction for ethical intelligence. Um, and thought, okay, going to dive right in. Let's do it. Um, and kicked it off with an amazing summer program that really actually was the part that gave us the true direction going forward. Um, and so we, we ran this summer program with our first three clients and officially launched in, in August. 
um, to the public, but it was those, those summer programs that really solidified, okay, this is the direction we're going. Um, of course, we've, we've grown massively and morphed since then, um, but the, the, the core is still there um, from since day one. Mm, that's incredible. So what, what's it like just now and how, how does it work? Um, give me a, an idea of structure and then how you go about helping businesses in the way that you do. Yeah. Um, so of course we're still, we're still technically, yeah, we're still, still startups, still startups, startup size. Um, so essentially it's myself and then I have six other colleagues. Um, we all work on the internal, we're, we're called the internal team. Um, we work on the business side. So we are the puppet masters behind everything, making sure everything's running. Um, we're currently uh, actually just launching this educational series that is part webinar, part podcast, part workshop. Um, so that's all hands on deck in terms of the internal team. And then actually how we're structured that allows us to grow and shrink very quickly, um, which is very important in terms of being a young startup in this field. Uh, we, have a we have an expert network. Um, there's about 30 or so uh, individuals in that network. And they are people from an interdisciplinary diverse background that are looking, either have established themselves or looking to establish themselves in, in this field of AI ethics. We bring them all together um, and then we contract with them when we have client projects, when we need that expertise. So it allows us to have this huge pool of knowledge um, and still be able to move very quickly uh, as the startup does. So it's a kind of a blended um, structure, but it, it's been working great for us. Mm, that's great. And I'm, we'll give your, your podcast a bit of a, more of a plug at the end, but is that, is this, um, uh, yeah, as you say, is a kind of educational component. So do you see part of your role as to bring what you do to wider society? Absolutely. Um, what we do with ethical intelligence is we educate and we equip. So there is a huge step that needs to be done in terms of educating of this is AI ethics. This is okay. Not even AI. This is ethics. This is AI ethics. This is what it means in business. So there's many steps to go through. Um, and we run across people at all sorts of different stages in those steps. So a lot of what we do currently is try and put the information out there, try and educate to, so that people can understand, okay, this, this is what, what this field means. Um, this is what it means in an industry context. And then on the flip side, um, actually equipping companies with the tools, with the uh, process, the management required to be able to um, put that kind of education and that knowledge into action. So it's, uh, we can't separate the two. We really can't. They, they go hand in hand. Mm, totally. Well, that's great. It's been really interesting to hear a bit about your career. Um, and aside from that, uh, the reason I invited you on um, is that um, the DMA is creating, um, curating even, uh, a kind of artist coronavirus as a topic so far, which is, um, you know, a, a positive, but nonetheless, this is the time in which we live, and there are all sorts of issues that are arising, um, in, in particular in your field, um, to do with um, how businesses survive, of course, ethical implications of um, keeping your employees on, how to have a working business at the moment, working from home, keeping everyone technologically on board. Um, but one of the big debates that we've seen at the moment is regarding, in the UK certainly, the NHS contract tracing app. And there's a couple of variations of um, governments around the, around the world 
doing similar things. But there's a kind of myriad of issues that have developed um, surrounding data privacy, you know, the, the role of misinformation about the app itself and how that's impacted public trust in the government in general, trust in businesses to deliver that, um, and how data is gathered and used, of course. Um, so just to, before we sort of dive into the discussion, I'll, I'll give a kind of brief overview of the strategy in the UK. Um, you'll no doubt have, have seen is to, once we've, well, now that we've passed this kind of peak of the virus, is to be able to, in a more kind of nimble and agile way, track how the virus is developing and um, catch any little um, growths of the virus wherever they are around the country. And one of the tools that the government wants to use is track and trace. Um, and one of the... Um, ways that they want to do that is through an app. So in essence, the app is designed to be downloaded by as many people in the population as possible. And there's kind of various thresholds of um, effectiveness, depending on how many people download the app. But in simplistic terms, it uses people's location um, to track where they're going from a day-to-day -day basis. And then um, if it turns out that someone with the app is diagnosed with coronavirus, then they can use that data. They can see where that person has been and see other people around them that have been in uh, close proximity to them for X amount of time. And then they can alert those people that they then need to stay at home or isolate or seek medical attention. Um, so that's that's kind of the, the broad idea, I guess. Um, now, as a, as a techie person, Olivia, you presumably thought this was a great idea. <laughs> well, you know, of course, it was meant to change the world. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I think from a tech perspective, um, it was the logical progression to building off of actual manual contact tracing. Um, the jury is still out whether I think it was the correct solution, um, mainly due to just actually carrying through with it and the ability of that technology. It's actually a very complicated, um, can be very complicated piece of technology, and it was essentially being trying to turn around in a month space of time, um, which in normal times, that would be unheard of. So there's still a lot of debate of actually how effective is this, because we've never used this before, um, but also is it actually possible to get it as effective as we need it um, in order to be able to uh, actually encourage people and, and increase that trust to people actually downloading the app. So. I'm going to go with the, the middle ground here and say it could go either way. Uh, it could be either a good solution or a bad solution. Um, it's still very much back and forth, back and forth, right down the line. Yeah, and of course, it's not actually working yet, which the government wants it to be out by now. But I mean, I think they said the end of this month, probably. Do you think that's realistic or are they going to be kicking it down the road for a little while? Uh, I have a feeling this might be kicked down the road for for quite a while, um, mm. just with how things are progressing, um, because it's not only making sure the technology works, it also is ensuring that the public trusts the technology and will actually use the technology. Um, so you have the barrier and the hurdle of, let's get this to work accurately, and then we also have to convince people to download it um, and use and it. Is it people's uh, doubtfulness that they think the government can kind of produce something like this that makes them not trust it? Or is it kind of a wider issue of people's trust in government altogether? Or what, what is the issue of trust and why, why is that something here? 
So the issue of trust in this specific situation is really tied to the concept of privacy. Um, we've seen that argument pop up from the very beginning of this is an invasion of my privacy. And in Western cultures, uh, we value privacy. The interesting thing with privacy is we're willing to trade a certain amount of that for benefits. Um, so it's not unheard of to say, okay, I am okay with an application tracking um, who I come into contact with if it means that in return, I have an understanding of if I've been exposed to corona accurately. Um, so there, there's a lot of trust tied up in terms of privacy. Um, the interesting one in terms of the NHS uh, app specifically is actually that whole, and I don't know if I'm jumping ahead in some of your questions, but the whole controversy between a centralized and a decentralized system. Um, mm. Go ahead, no, dive into that. Let's do it. Let's okay. Do it. <laughs> it's like, I, I hope I didn't screw up your, your, your question line up there. It's fine. We're, we're free-flowing. Do whatever you'd like. <laughs> Perfect. Um, so the interesting thing there that I've personally found, um, well, intellectually interesting to watch the reactions was, we had Apple and Google come out and they are tech giants and they went, okay, we are constructing decentralized systems because that is the most privacy preserving. And of course that perked up everyone's ears because the concern, right? As the idea of, okay, contact tracing apps was privacy was okay. Well, first of all, can we get it to work? But also second, that's an invasion of my privacy. And how, how do we make this privacy preserving? That was uh, the unprecedented word that got you know thrown around with everything else. Um, and so when Apple and Google came out saying, okay, we are doing this, um, I live right by a school and apparently we're upset today, but <laughs> <laughs> that. apparently there are children probably in the street again. Uh, yeah, I guess so. <laughs> <clearly> <laughs> Don't worry, it's fine. It's, it's relatively quiet. So it's, okay. it's fine. Just ignore it. To me, it's very loud. Okay. <laughs> It's like an air horn in my ear. <laughs> so essentially, um, when Google and Apple came out pinpointing the fear that people had that this was not going to, that this kind of application wasn't going to respect their privacy, and Apple and Google set, came out saying, this respects privacy, immediately that put people's minds in this perspective of, okay, it has to be a decentralized system. And I mean, we're talking about people that have no idea what the difference between centralized and decentralized systems are. But because the tech giants, the gurus of technology came out and said, this preserves privacy, doesn't matter that Apple and Google sometimes, well, most of the time have uh, questionable privacy measures already, but the fact that they came out saying, this is privacy and this is what you're worried about, but uh, we can help with that fear, immediately people went, okay, uh, we need a decentralized system. That is the only system we can trust. Mm. And then the NHS app purposely actually made the conscious decision of, no, we're going with a centralized system. And of course, that debate is still very hot at the moment, but we're going with a centralized system. So immediately, because of the actions of Apple and Google, that put the trust barrier in the centralized system much higher, much stronger. And it could be that the centralized system was the better decision. There are multiple benefits to it. It's actually stronger in terms of from a cybersecurity perspective. There's less entry points. You can actually protect the data, protect the access to it um, at a much higher level than you can with a decentralized system. So, but that wasn't, uh, that wasn't a big concern that people could wrap their minds around and wasn't one that was highlighted. 
with that with that kind of decision. So uh, there's a couple of interesting things there, but there's what's the kind of reasoning behind this kind of sudden or what I, I would sort of think was a sort of sudden switch. People in the UK certainly are very trusting of the NHS. It's one of you know the things that people always list as something that they like about the country. Um, and I, I think I'm right in saying that the trust levels in companies like Apple and Google more generally are pretty dreadful. So is it purely this kind of uh, shaping of the conversation that Apple and Google did from the outset that has allowed their kind of perspective on this to um, be seen by the public as the, the right way to go? Um, or why is this kind of trust um, paradigm switched? I think the conversation would be a lot different. I'm not sure if it would still have the same outcome solely because there would have to be enough benefit that people were trading in for their privacy. The, the centralized system is uh, a bit of a different approach in terms of privacy. There are higher risks in terms of individual privacy, but there are stronger benefits to a centralized system. Um, for example, the cybersecurity, but also it also makes it a lot easier to study the spread of the virus. It's in a central system. You can give that access to epidemiologists that can study the spread of the virus. So there's a health benefit behind it so that there can be a preparedness for future, well, hopefully not anytime soon, but future pandemics. Um, you can have that, that, that trade-off. So I think if, you, if it was more of a techni technical literate society, um, there would be more willingness to discuss, okay, what are the, what are the actual trade-offs? Because right now it's just concentrated on privacy. That's not the only trade-off you're making. Um, but that's what people are, are stuck on. Whereas if you have more of a technical literacy, it's like, okay, I, I see the privacy aspect, but I understand that there are more aspects and, uh, it may be at the end of the day that the society at large would go, okay, I'm willing to trade this, this, uh, concept of individual privacy for these other benefits that come along with a centralized system. Um, mm. So again, I can't can't predict that. Uh, I can't predict whether it would have been a completely different story. But I think the conversation would have. I know the conversation would have looked a lot different. Looking to public policy more widely and, and the use of tech, um, particularly in the NHS. Actually, we, we, the use of technology, obviously, aside from the medical and surgical influence that people use that are incredible but the, in terms of the bureaucratic aspect of it the, the, the um, inputting of policy it's all pretty backwards technologically do you think this is a, uh, a moment that's going to change that do you think there's going to I mean obviously tech is going to play a role in public policy in, in whatever field that is going forward but is this particularly in health a, a watershed moment I think it's definitely a wake-up call definitely a wake-up call for the health industry to understand it. But there, there is medical tech already, and it does have a strong showing um, for the health industry to actually recognize the influence and the impact that technology can have in the health, health sector. Um, I think it's also a wake-up call in the other direction for technology, people coming from the tech industry to understand just how heavy of an influence and an impact they can have in other sectors, which for better or for worse is something that, that is uh, important to understand, that the decisions that, that the tech giants and technology industry makes in general 
does not stay within the tech industry. It has implications far beyond that, that industry. So I think um, I'd love to say that this would be a great turning point um, with great collaboration. However, we're going to see. It will be a wake-up call, and we will see a difference, um, whether that's a more segregated and you stay in your industry and I stay in my industry, or if it's a more collaborative base, uh, that's still unfolding. Mm. And obviously, the use usefulness of people's individual health data um, to the wider society, particularly in coronavirus, is just um, it's just usually useful for tracking people being able to control um, the spread of the virus. Um, and we see insurance companies, for example, using um, smartwatches to track how um, how much exercise people are doing and give them a better insurance deal. Do you think people's personal data and you know where they go will that will that remain part of their sort of privacy concerns because i think i think it's sort of consensus now that privacy is here to say and you know members that um mark zuckerberg retracting his statement that privacy was dead or whatever it was um do you think people's data is going to remain part of that their core concerns about privacy or will that kind of be separated as they can understand how it can be anonymized and used in different ways to their benefit um, two parts to this answer. First part, yes, I do think we are entering into an age where privacy is going to become less and less of a concern. We already see that in younger generations. They don't care about clicking consent on their data being tracked. They're like, sure, it's great. I get um, customized Snapchat filters because of it. I don't know, that, that, that kind of thing. I, I have a 17-year-old brother who is obsessed with that. Um, and, and I've asked him before, I'm like, well, what about privacy? I mean, the, the app now knows your location. He's like, yeah, so doesn't matter. So the concept of privacy is definitely changing. I mm. think specifically in this situation, there is a huge concern that needs to be addressed and essentially have regulations put in place. And that is health data coming into economic influences. And I put it this way. So our health data, we essentially have no control over our health data in the sense of I have no control over whether or not I, um, I'm going to come up with, with uh, medical things, whether I'm colorblind or not, or whether I have cancer as a history in my family. I have no control over that. Same as someone with a, handi uh, with a handicap. Um, that person had no control. If they're, if they're born without legs, that person had no control over that. So our health data essentially tracks something. Granted, of course, you have lifestyle choices, um, but our health data tracks something that we have no control over. It's how our DNA, it's, it's just the luck of the draw of how we were born and the DNA that we were born with. Having the crossover between health data and economic liberties, economic uh, abilities, influences, uh, benefits, immediately we have our concept of justice and fairness called into question because why should I be inhibited from, um, say, a good insurance policy because I have uh, heart disease that I had, again, no control over. And I do my best to monitor it, but why does that suddenly be the reason why I have to pay higher insurance um, and vice versa? So I think with this concept, and we saw a bit as well with the immunity passports debate mm. um, 
where someone that's immune to the, immune to the virus um, is free to go about their normal day in life, uh, essentially giving them all these economic liberties based off of something, again, they had no control over. So I think this is a great moment and a, a moment of privacy. Yes, that, that conversation is important. But I think that's starting to cover the really pertinent, essential discussion that needs to happen. And it's how do we keep health data in health and not cross over into our liberties, our abilities in our social life, in our, in our economic life? Um, we do our best to mitigate already how someone's handicap affects them in their day-to-day -day life. We have different programs in, in place that allows them um, essentially to uh, do the, live their life to the best of their abilities despite whatever um, health, health data, health uh, factor they were born with. Um, if we start having this, this crossover, all we're doing is creating all of these handicaps in our society uh, that weren't there before. Mm. I guess so. And do you, does that become a shared burden or does it just become a more accurate way of discriminating against people? Let's see what the tech giants do. Yeah. <laughs> That's one of those things. It's like, oh, this is great. It's solutionism. It's you're like, this is great solution. And, and uh, you know, we can, we can have the smartwatches and, and give better, better um, insurance deals. And then later on down the line, they realize, oh, okay. So we had this one group that really benefited from that. And then we had the minority that now is paying ridiculously insane insurance rates because their genetic makeup is prone to some bizarre little teeny aspect that uh, if it's, if it happens in their life, turns into this huge medical cost. Um, so that, 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 uh, that perspective, yeah, that, that, that looking that forward thinking isn't always necessarily taken into account in tech, but when it's coming to health, that absolutely needs to be taken into account. Mm. So just wrapping up, um, what would you say, are you kind of hopeful of this trajectory that you know, tech has this role to play? Obviously, inevitably, it will play a greater role. Is there enough of a, a balance? And do people, um, the general public, have enough control over the way that the direction of the conversation and the technolo technology um, is going? Or does there need to be a kind of shift in the weight of control that even governments have or big businesses have? What's your perspective on the way we're going? I think right now, um, people don't have a big enough say because they're not entirely aware of what's going on. Technology is literally like a second language. Um, when you're born and you grow up with it, we just have a knack for understanding technology. But the older generations, of course, have had to learn it. So their, their minds aren't wired um, the same way that someone that's grown up from day one with an iPad in their hand. Um, so I think as of now, people don't have enough education to understand what's going on, but also they don't have enough say. It really is driven by the tech giants. What they say goes. Um, for example, we have been in the debate for years about facial recognition years and years and years. There's been huge ethical questions. There have been legal questions, all of this. Never once did the companies or the giants stop. They just kept producing. They kept researching. 
And then as soon as IBM came out and said, you know what, we're going to, we're going to put, we're going to press pause on facial recognition. All of a sudden we had Microsoft, we had Amazon, all of them followed suit. So it still comes down to, it doesn't matter really how much we're saying it's still, if you can't get one of the tech giants on board with it, it's never going to go through. It's never going to happen. Even to the point where the tech giants are now deciding what governments do. Um, and how they, again, back to the NHS app, uh, we had Apple and Google decide this is the direction that it goes. And the NHS, the NHS, a government funded entity, it's like, well, you just made that decision and we're not entirely sure we're on board with that decision, but now the public's following and that's the decision that was made. Um, I've lost my train of thought and I can't remember because <laughs> right. well, it, it expertly puts us into um, or moves the conversation along to the educational component. And as we were mentioning mm -hmm. earlier, you have a new podcast that you started quite recently. Tell me a bit about that and what's the aims and objectives. Yeah, so we have a new podcast out. It's called Building Ethical Intelligence. Um, and the whole mindset of that is no, not building the company ethical intelligence, but uh, you have all of these different intelligence markers you know you have emo you have emotional intelligence you have uh, logical artificial uh, spatial you have all these different types of intelligence and ethics your actual understanding of eth ethics and morality that's that's an intelligence your ability to spot a situation and understand that that is a moral situation that requires a moral decision and that requires you to weigh the different ethical principles being able to spot that and then as well critically examine and make the proper decision, that is a type of intelligence. So what this podcast is designed to do is to help you build that intelligence from, from the ground up, um, again, within the lens of technology specifically. Um, but essentially with the podcast that we're doing, we have, it's a combination of a, a weekly, starting in two weeks, we'll have it weekly, uh, weekly episodes, um, and a monthly. So the monthly episodes are an hour long and they focus on one of our experts out of our expert network um, on their research specifically. So we just did one with uh, Michael Klenk out of Delft University and he was talking to us about online manipulation. So perfect timing. Um, and essentially that is to dive into the research of the experts that we have um, and their perspectives. Again, they're, they're working in this field. Um, and then the weekly episodes are uh, a little more relaxed, um, but they're open conversations with myself, um, Amanda, and Oriana. Amanda is our head of technology, and Oriana is our head of operations. And essentially, what we're doing is every week we're coming together and discussing in a nice short little clip, not the news, but the developments that have happened in AI ethics. It's a very fast moving field. So mm. this whole this whole podcast uh, weekly episode is designed to keep you up to date on, okay, what's the new technology? What's happening? As well as from different perspectives. I have the, uh, I wouldn't say honor, but I have the ability to speak from the American perspective. Oriana brings the UK perspective and Amanda brings the European perspective. So we can keep um, these very interesting, from, from a cultural side, the debates coming from the different uh, powerhouses in these conversations. So that is meant to essentially 
keep you aware and up to date of these are, are the major debates, this is how they're developing, and here's the perspectives, here's the information on it. So you're educated. So you understand the difference between centralized and decentralized system and why uh, one benefits over the other and why uh, there's this, this backlash with the NHS and Google versus Apple, um, having that background information as you go forward. Brilliant. Well, that sounds really good. I will definitely be subscribing. Can you get that? Is it on most of the podcast channels? Yes. Uh, I think, Great. what do you say? It's uh, you subscribe wherever you get your, your podcast. So Spotify, yeah. iTunes, <laughs> Apple Music, something called Podbean. Oh, nice. <laughs> Yes. Excellent. Well, that's great. Um, brilliant. Well, thank you so much. That's been uh, a fascinating discussion. Um, if you want to get in touch with either of us about anything that we've been chatting about on the podcast, please feel free. What's the best way to get in touch with you? Uh, so reach out to me either on, let's see, Twitter or LinkedIn. Um, you can find me both on Twitter and LinkedIn, just my full name, Olivia Gamblin. Um, or you can reach us through our website for ethical intelligence at www.ethicalintelligence.co. Excellent. Great. Well, thank you so much, Olivia. It's been fantastic to have you on. And we, uh, you're going to be contributing to the article series, of course, so we're really looking forward to having that. Um, and the podcast will be up on the website. Similarly to you, ours is available in all, um, all your favourite uh, podcasts. <laughs> dissemination yeah. places <laughs> wherever you find um, it so yeah do get in touch and uh, thank you very much for listening thank you for having me on michael not at all